Hope everybody is well today and enjoying this lovely weather we have. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this day and this lovely weather you've given us, Lord. Lord, we thank you again also for, for Jake's testimony he shared with us today, Lord. Lord, we ask that uh, all, all present here open their hearts and minds today for this reading of your word, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Go first. Let me go. Okay. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods, who will go before us. And for this, for this follow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with the tool. Then they said, these are our gods, Israel, who brought us out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival of the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in rivalry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people who have brought up, brought up out of Egypt has become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed it and have said, these are our gods, Israel, who brought us up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster to your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land. I promise them, and I will be in their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant, covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the, in the fire 
Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you, that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As, as for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt. Where to go? We don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Let you're doing great. You're reading all the way through next week's sermon, and that's awesome. I appreciate that. I'm going to cut you there because we're going to take verses 1 through 22 and kind of preach through that here a little bit this morning. Thank you guys so much. Have you ever forgotten something extremely important in your life? You ever been there before where there was just something and you were like, man, I was supposed to remember this, and I didn't. You been there? Uh, I don't know if it's just the fact that I'm starting to get a little bit older, but uh, my wife tells me that I'm, I'm leaving the house more more often than not, I uh, tend to forget things. How many of you, be honest for just a moment, you leave the house, you get in the car, you realize you've forgotten something, so you're back in the car trying to, so we've all been there before. I remember just this last week, I jumped in the car, I was getting ready to drive away, realized I had forgotten my laptop for work. So I jump out of the car, run in the house, grab my laptop, bring it in. I grab my laptop, I'm getting ready to take off again. I realize all of a sudden, oh man, now I forgot my cell phone. So I'm running back in the car, grabbing my cell phone, coming back in. I go to reach in my pocket for the keys. I reach, no keys in my pocket. I've got to go back into the house, get the keys. Why? Well, just, I don't know what's happening. You just start to forget things that you're supposed to remember. And I don't know if that's something that comes along with age. I don't know if I'm getting old. I don't know exactly what's happening, but we all have seasons in our lives where we begin to forget those things that we're supposed supposed to remember. And in this passage, that's exactly what's happening to the nation of Israel. Just a few chapters before, in chapters number 20, God had reminded the children of Israel, hey, there are some commandments, there are some things that I want for you to remember. There are some things that are extremely important. And the first two of the great Ten Commandments were, hey, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you should not make any graven images to those gods. They were the first two of the Ten Commandments. And here we are in chapter 32, just 12 chapters later, and already we see the children of Israel forgetting those two basic commands. They were forgetting things that God had encouraged them to remember. And I don't know about you, but isn't it so easy to forget those things that are most important? You ever been there before? It's one thing when you just forget your keys. It's another thing when you just forget, you know, to bring something to work. It's an entirely other thing when it's something that God, the creator of the universe, gives to us, reminds us to do, and we come to a place where all of a sudden we have forgotten that which God is encouraging us to remember. And, and that's what we see here in this passage. Here we see that the children of Israel have forgotten these most important basic commandments that he's given to us and to them. Here's our theme for this morning. If you're kind of taking notes and you want to have a big idea to hold on to as we move through our text this morning, it's simply this. Idolatry, and that's really the theme of this passage, and we'll define idolatry in a moment, but idolatry robs us from being able to experience the best life that God has available to us. 
Sometimes when we think about this idea of idolatry, sometimes what happens is we kind of think, man, that's something that ancient pagans used to be involved in. Yes, we see it here in Exodus 32, this nation of Israel making this golden calf out of jewelry. They melted down their jewelry and they built this statue. They built this idol and they begin to worship it. And so when we think about idolatry in our modern context, we tend to think of you know, religions and pagan rituals that revolve around idols, that revolve around statues, that revolve around graven images, and we think that is idolatry. But as we're going to see, idolatry affects us today in the 21st century, just like it was affecting the nation of Israel here in Exodus chapter number 32. And the reason we need to talk about this, and the reason it's so important to our lives today, is because even today, idolatry will rob us It will steal away our ability to experience the life that God has designed for us to live. The ability to experience God's best for our life. So here's a question I want to pose to you this morning and then we'll march through our Bible study. Here's the question. What is your golden calf? Can we ask ourselves that for just a moment? What is your golden calf? What is that thing in your life that God is like, hey, I want to have your full focus. I want you to make me your ultimate priority. I want you to filter all your decisions through my will. But there's this other thing in your life that tends to get the priority, that tends to outrank God's will, that tends to be constantly prioritized above you spending time in the presence of God. What is it that is that thing that causes you to get distracted from God's presence onto a lesser thing. What is your golden calf? That's a question we're going to ask ourselves this morning. And so I want to look at three important aspects of idolatry from Exodus chapter number 32, verses 1 through 22, all right? We're going to look at three things here today. Since we've already had a word of prayer, we'll just dive right into it. So let's just start here, Exodus chapter number 32. Notice what the Bible says in verses 1 through 4 as we look at our first thought this morning. The Bible says, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, remember he's up in the mountain, God's giving him here his commandments, he's spending time with God, and now the people, all these Israelites, they're like, man, Moses has been up there a long time with Joshua, what's going on? And so in in coming down, they gathered around Aaron, which we know is Aaron's brother, who was kind of in charge when Moses wasn't around. They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods, little g-o-d. Remember, they had come from Egypt. In Egypt, there were lots of these pagan images. There were lots of these little g-gods that they, the Israelites, I'm sorry, the Egyptians would worship. And now these Israelites, they want little g-gods. They want these idols. They want these graven images that they can see with their eyes. They, they don't want simply a god that is out there somewhere. No, they wanted something smaller, something they could understand, something they could fully control. And so they say to Aaron, come, make us gods who will go before us as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt we don't know what has happened to him he's been gone a long time maybe he's abandoned us as his leader so make us a god that can go before us Aaron answered them okay take off the gold earrings that your wives your sons your daughters are wearing and bring them to me so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron he took 
It says he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So you see what's happening here. If you grew up in church, and maybe for a few of you, you went to Sunday school, this is kind of a popular Sunday school story. As these children of Israel are going through the wilderness, Moses is up on the mountain getting a word from the Lord, spending time in the presence of God. Here these Israelites are down below. They're waiting on Moses, and all of a sudden they get like, no, we want, we want gods like the Egyptians had gods. And so Aaron comes along and says, okay, I'll help you out. He says, you're going to take all your jewelry. We're going to melt it down. We're going to make a golden calf, kind of like the ones that the Egyptians used to worship. But notice that last phrase in verse number four. It says, it says here, then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, let me ask you a question. Did this golden calf, did this pagan graven image, was that the graven image? Was that the idol that brought these people out of Egypt? Yes or no? No. Was that pagan image, was that graven image, was that idol the thing that split wide open the Red Sea? No. What is happening in this passage is they, these Israelites are ascribing value. They are ascribing meaning. They are ascribing priorities to something that belongs to God to something else. Do you see what's going on here? They are, they are taking something that belongs to God that is part of his glory, that is something that he has produced, and they're saying, no, that no longer belongs to God, it belongs to this thing over here. And that, at its essence, is what idolatry is. And that is how you and I get involved with idolatry here in the 21st century. It is when we take something that belongs to God, and we say, nope, Obedience to God, that's not as important. I need to be obedient to this thing. Prioritize God? Nope, nope. I think I'm going to prioritize that thing. And so idolatry happens in the 21st century when we begin to ascribe worth, when we begin to ascribe value, when we begin to ascribe priorities to things that belong to God, the creator of the universe, and we ascribe them to something less. Which brings us to our first thought this morning, and that is this. If you like to take notes like I do, let, let's talk about this for a moment. Developing an idol. Developing an idol. Yes, back in ancient days, they would develop idols by taking jewelry and they would melt it down or they would take some type of metals like a bronze or a gold. They would melt it and they would fashion it into some type of image. But today, in American culture, we're a little bit more sophisticated with our idolatry. For the most part, in westernized America, we don't often have statues that we ascribe worth and value and priorities to. We're a little bit more uh, advanced than that. We, we're a little bit more sophisticated than that because our idols tend to be idols that we create in our heart. Idols that we create in our lives. And so we see the development of an idol. You see, when God created each and every one of us, he created us for worship. Get this, this is important. You were designed 
to be a worshiper. When God breathed life into your soul, your, your psychology, your mindset, your, you were created to desire, to worship. That, that was something that was embedded deeply within you when you were created. Everybody was designed and created to worship. We were literally wired to worship something or someone. The, the reality is this. Every one of us worships something. Every one of us. Every one of us ascribes ultimate priority, ultimate value, and ultimate worth to something or someone. Why? Because every one of us are wired for worship. The question is not whether or not you are going to worship. The real question is, what is it that you ultimately worship? What is it that you give ultimate value to? What is it that you ultimately prioritize in your life? That's the real question. What is it that you give? Why? Because every one of us, every one of us, if we're not careful, can begin to develop idolatry in our hearts and lives. So the question is, what is it that we worship? What is it that we ultimately surrender our will to? For the addict, the ultimate thing that might control might be some drugs. The alcoholic, that ultimate thing that they surrender to, that they give authority to, is that alcohol. For some, maybe they're a little bit more socially polished, and, and for, uh, for some, it's like, you know what? Food has the ultimate control of their life. For others, it's maybe materialism, just money drives the, the desire for more things in their life. Ultimately, is the thing that drives them, that motivates them, that they surrender their ultimate will to. You see, idolatry can take on many, many forms. You, you see, idolatry is, is we're, we're seeing what idolatry is when, when it's the, the thing that we give primary authority to in our lives. What, what has ultimate authority in your life? What is it that you find ultimate joy in? Ultimate satisfaction in? Ultimate contentment in? If you answer these questions, you'll begin to get insight into what it is that you worship. What it is that you give ultimate authority, ultimate value, ultimate worth to. And what we're going to see in this passage is our creator God desires to be that ultimate authority in our life. He's the one who wants us to surrender our will to him. And when we surrender it to something or someone else, that is when idolatry tar starts to take root in our hearts. Here's what Romans chapter number one, verse 25 says, all right? Romans chapter number one, verse 25. The Bible says these people exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did they do? It says they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And this is at the heart of what worship and idolatry is. It's when we take something, when we, when we take this thing that is supposed to be on God's level and we pull God down a notch and say he's not going to be the ultimate authority, he's not going to be the thing I ultimately surrender to, he's not going to be the thing I find my ultimate joy, my ultimate satisfaction in, and then you replace it with something else. And for ancient civilizations, they would replace it with these idols, these images, these statues and they would say that's where the power is that's where the authority's at that's where I'm gonna find my joy this is where I'm gonna find my satisfaction for us in 
modern civilizations, it's often ideologies. It's often people. It's often material possessions or money that takes that spot. Wealth can very easily become something that we worship. You say, how is that? Because we allow it to drive our decisions. It becomes the ultimate authority in how we live our lives, just to get a little bit more money, just to have a little bit more wealth, and so it becomes the priority of how we navigate our life. It's the thing we look to in order to uh, secure satisfaction. We're like, man, if I can get this much money or if I can have that much wealth, then I'll be happy, then I'll have real joy, then I can really be content. And so what we do is we can take money, finances, and wealth, and we can make that idea an idol. And we could, we could talk about a dozen other things that in modern America becomes an idol, takes the place of God in our lives. But I want to remind you of this. Idols, no matter what form they take, whether they take the form of a golden calf like we see in Exodus chapter number 32, or whether it takes the form of, you know, this, this intense craving for more of this material world. What, whatever form it takes, notice this. Idols don't fully satisfy. They can only pacify. I'm going to say that again because this is really important. Regardless of the form your idolatry takes, idols do not fully satisfy. They can only pacify you for a moment. And this is why they are so dangerous. Because at the end of the day, whatever it is that you elevate to the place of God, yes, it'll, it'll, it'll give this temporary sense of pacification. Like, it'll give this sense of temporary moment of relief, like temporary satisfaction, temporary contentment. But God reminds us that he is the only one who can fully satisfy. He is the only one that can bring full contentment. He is the only one who can bring absolute, ultimate joy regardless of what you're going through. He is the only one that can give you a sense of being loved and accepted and affirmed. You, you can look to other people. You can look for, uh, to other things for that fulfillment, that satisfaction, that contentment. I'm just going to remind you, at some point, every one of these idols will fail you and ultimately crush you. And this is why God loves you too much to say, wait, wait a second, I don't want you to have any other God before me. And whether that takes on a physical kind of manifestation or whether it's an ideological manifestation in your psychology, the idolatry is still just as destructive. So we see the development of an idol. Now let's read verse 5 and 6 because I want you to see this next thought. The Bible says in verse 5, now when Aaron saw this, remember Aaron was the one who helped him build this graven image, verse number 5 of chapter number 32. When Aaron saw this, he, he built an altar in front of this calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. Verse 6, so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offering, offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat, drink. They got up to indulge in revelry. Okay? So, so I want you to see what's going on. They, they build this golden idol, but now it's not just enough to have the idol. Now they begin to worship the idol. Now they begin to give themselves to the idol. Now they begin to celebrate this idol. They have this 
festival, this feast, and, and now there's all kinds of practices that would have been done in ancient Egyptian kind of worship rituals and ceremonies in Egypt, and, and now they're taking those same rituals and, and they're worshiping this golden calf in that same way, which brings us to the second thought I want us to kind of consider this morning, and not only do we see here in this passage the development of an idol, but I want you to see secondly being devoted to an idol. First they developed it, first they built it, and then they devoted themselves to it. They gave themselves to it. They surrendered to it. They gave it ultimate worth. You see, for thousands of years, idolatry was something that pagans did outwardly. And then a subtle shift began to take place. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter number 14. I've quoted this verse before, but I think it's important within this context. It says, Son of man, these men have set up idols, notice this, in their hearts. Idolatry shifted from something that happened in the physical realm where there was these statues and these graven images. And even in some religions today, you know, there are still these, these statues and there are still these images that people ascribe worth to and they allow that image, that symbol to take the place of God. But more often than not, in our culture, the idols that we have are idols that are in our hearts. They're psychological idols. They're ideological idols. They're, they're things that we contrive. They're things that we give ultimate value to, ultimate worth to in our hearts that literally we give, it a, we give these ideologies authority over God. We surrender to these ideologies more than we surrender to the revealed word of God. And so in that way, these idols begin to become idols of the heart, idols of the soul. The reality is uh, this, you know, we all have seasons where there's something good that we have in our lives and we take a good thing and then make that an ultimate thing in our life. Uh, this week was my wife's birthday, and so I asked her, you know, hey, Jenny, what do, what do you want for your birthday? You know, just kind of the obligatory thing I guess you do when your wife's having a birthday. What is it that you want? And uh, she came up with an unusual request this year. She said, you know what? She said, I think, I think I want you to make dinner for us. Now, that might seem perfectly normal in your home. Uh, the problem is I don't cook. <laughs> you probably don't want to have my cooking. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not too great. And so I remember doing everything I could, trying to, you know, figure out. I went shopping. I went to, went to Trader Joe's. I'd been to Trader Joe's. I, that's, I went there. I got some food for dinner. I got some hors d'oeuvres. I was, like, going to build this thing up, made dinner. And you know what? To be honest, uh, you know, at the end of the night, all the food got eaten and nobody died. All right? So I, that's a success. <laughs> That was, that was, that was kind of, you said, man, you didn't really have the bar set very high, you know, don't kill your wife on her birthday, you know, that was about, that was where, those where the standard was. I remember the first time I cooked way, I was like about five or six years old, and I, we were going camping with my family. We went camping, and uh, my dad told me I had to make the scrambled eggs for breakfast that morning, and, and so I, as a, as a kid, five or six years old, you, you know how you were when you were a kid, it was hard to, you know, hard to kind of stay focused. Any of you struggle with this? I, I did struggle with a little bit of, uh, with they, didn't, they didn't call it this back then, but that ADHD thing, you know, everywhere, and this, it's one of the reasons I became a pastor so I could preach, because I just struggled to sit in the pew, like I just couldn't do that, you know, I was like, well, if I got to go to church, I might as well be doing something, you know. 
I remember we were making those scrambled eggs, and, and I didn't realize it because it was the first time I had made them, but when you make scrambled eggs, you can't just kind of stir the top. You have, to, you have to go down deep and kind of scrape the bottom of the pan, make sure the part of the eggs that get cooked on the pan, you know, kind of get stirred up a little bit. But I was just kind of stirring the top, so when it was all done, basically the bottom had just completely, just completely been all, it was just like uh, burnt bottom of the egg so I we stir I stirred that all in and, and basically these scrambled eggs were scrambled eggs that had all this burnt egg kind of mixed into it and you know that was on one of these old frying pans you know that you would take out camping and so it was just man I took a bite of those eggs I, and I, I I wasn't the greatest you know uh cook or anything like that but I, I knew when something tasted right and I knew when something tasted wrong even as a five or six year old I knew those things taste horrible I remember my family sitting around you know trying to take bites of those scrambled eggs and every one of them grimaced on their face like man these, these are awful I remember my little brother, though, he was great. He, he was probably, you know, three or four years old. In fact, he preached here a few weeks ago. Micaiah, I remember Micaiah looking at me, and Micaiah saying, man, I love these. I remember I got a real big smile on my face. This is awesome. He says, these are great. Tastes just like dirt. <laughs> the reality is we can all get to a place in our lives where bad things or unhealthy things start to taste like good things. And if we're not careful, our appetites, our soul cravings, start getting used to things that don't serve us, that don't serve the Lord, that are not healthy for us, and that the Bible would deem as sin. And can I say this? Idolatry is one of those things. Proverbs chapter number four, verse 23 says this, above all else, guard your heart. Guard it. Guard it from what? Guard it from idolatry. Guard it from this ideologies that are going to kind of try to subvert God and, and demote God in your soul and in your mind and in your heart. We got to be careful of this. Some of you remember the late Billy Graham. He was, he was an evangelist. He, he had this to say in regards to idolatry. He said, though today we may not bow down to idols made of stone or metal as people did in ancient times, that doesn't mean we don't have our own idols today. He went on to say this. Anything that we serve just as zealously as they did, speaking of this passage, until we are slavishly following them and allow them to become the most important things in our lives, dictating what we do and what we will not do, when we give these things the power to dictate our priorities, to dictate our values, to dictate our schedules, to dictate our spending, those things have become our idols. Can I, can I remind you of this? Idol worship is not just about golden calves anymore. It isn't. I'm going to list some things that intrinsically, a lot of them are good things, but they are horrible, ultimate things. And when good things become ultimate things, they become the things that drive our priorities, our schedules, our spending, our values. They become ultimate things in our life. Those ideologies, those things become idols. It, it can become possessions that we have. There's nothing wrong with having cars. There's nothing wrong with having nice things and nice furnishings. 
But the moment those become ultimate things, they ultimately drive our prioritizations, our schedules, our spending. Careers can be a good thing, but they can also become ultimate things. And our careers can literally become an idol. It dri- it's more important to us than our marriages. It becomes more important than our families. It becomes more important than our relationship with a church. Why? They become an ultimate thing. Food. Shopping. Entertainment. These are not intrinsically bad things in and of themselves, but when they become ultimate things and they ultimately drive our schedule, our spending, our priorities, they become idols. Uh, Technological devices. I mean, the amount of time that kids and teens and that's even adults are spending on our phones now just scrolling through social media. You say, what's wrong with that? I don't know that there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. But when all of a sudden we have hours and hours a day to spend in front of a television, in front of an iPad, in front of a a phone, and we have literally hours upon hours to do, and yet we have very little time to spend in the presence of God, to spend in prayer, to spend in those things that will truly enrich and bring satisfaction and joy and hope. And when we spend more time cultivating our relationship to to social media than we do cultivating our relationship to God, there might be a misprioritization there. Nothing intrinsically wrong with social media. But it's about priorities. We talked about we can make money and possessions or sports teams. Sometimes we turn romantic love into an idol. I just, man, I gotta get married. I gotta, I gotta find this person that will bring ultimate fulfillment. I gotta make my spouse be that person that'll make me ultimately feel safe and secure. And we can put this romantic love on a pedestal. Nothing wrong with romantic love in its proper place, but it can become an idol. Even, even within church world, there are preferences and traditions that a lot of religions and a lot of religious people, they make those preferences into idols, literally. I've been in church world a whole long time, and the reality is, depending on what church you go to or what denomination you're a part of or what faith community you say is your, the reality is a lot of congregations that very easily make traditions and rituals, and they elevate it to a place where it's literally idolatry, where they put this, man, dressing this way or singing this song or acting like this becomes a bigger priority than spending time in the presence of God we can make this is apropos but we can make a political party an idol and we can say as long as this person gets an office or as long as that person gets an office then I can feel safe I can feel secure as long as this person gets voted for and that person doesn't get voted for then I'll feel like everything's okay I think it's where we are so responsible to make sure we're voting and to make sure we're doing our part as as just you know uh, responsible citizens but the moment all of a sudden our ultimate hope and our confidence and our faith rests on a political party or a political candidate, we have committed idolatry of the heart. Our security is found not in some president or some king, but in the king of kings, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is ultimately in control. We do our part in a spirit of obedience, and then we turn the rest to God and say, God, help us to be what you want us to be in these moments. But we can trust the Lord with that because he is ultimately, the the Bible says that the heart of the kings are in the hand of God. We can trust God. 
We can put our confidence in him, but we can make a political candidate, we can make a political party an idol. And it's extremely unhealthy for the believer. We can make health and fitness an idol. It's good to be healthy. It, it's good probably to work out and, and keep your temple, as the Bible calls it, your body, this temple, it, keep it healthy. It's probably a good thing, but if we're not careful, that can be the, become an ultimate thing. For some people, they make beauty an idol. The way they dress, the way they look, the way they project themselves, and that, that their, their sense of beauty, the sense of how they look becomes an ultimate thing in their life. So when they feel like they're looking good, they feel good about themselves. When they look in the mirror and they don't look good, they feel bad about themselves. That becomes an ultimate thing because it's driving how we see ourselves, how we view ourselves, our self-esteem, how we feel about ourselves. And so we need to get to a place where we say, no, what God says about me is more important than what the mirror says about me. What God says about me is more important what a bank account says about me. What God says about me is more important than what friends say about me. Why? Because what God says about me is way more important than what my past says about me because God is the ultimate one in control. He gets to define me, not some lesser thing. And when we allow a lesser thing to define us, idolatry begins to creep in. We see developing an idol. We see devotion to an idol. Notice verse number 17. I want you to see this last thought as we kind of unpack this today. Notice what it says. So when Joshua, this was Moses' assistant at the time, eventually he's gonna become kind of the one in charge of the people of Israel when Moses dies. But when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory and it's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. Verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them into pieces, literally at the foot of the mount, took these 10 commandments, he broke them. We've seen pictures of this. Maybe we saw the movie with Charleston Heston. Some of you have a little bit, you know, remember this, all right? Verse number 20, he took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire. Then Moses ground that idol into powder. He scattered it on the water. And notice this, he made the Israelites drink it. He said, we're, we're getting rid of this thing. So, so here's what we've seen so far. We've seen the development of this idol. We see devotion to this idol. I want you to see lastly, destroying the idols. Destroying the idols. If idolatry and ideologies exist in our heart that has prioritized themselves above God, then what it is doing, it is robbing you of joy. And this is why it's so important to destroy idols. Because whether your idol is beauty or material possessions or relationships or a sports team or food, regardless of what this ideology is that you've given ultimate value and ultimate worth to, if it's anything other than the true and living God, the creator of all that there is, then that idol is forcing you to sacrifice things to it that should not be sacrificed. And I've seen a lot of people sacrifice their family on the altar of their careers. And they have sacrificed marriages on the altar of the pursuit of wealth. And so when we have an idol, that idol is going to demand sacrifices that are going to destroy you. They're going to destroy the best that God has for you. They're going to destroy relationships and destroy families and destroy friendships. Why? Because there is a weight that gets put on individuals that makes something other than God a priority. The reality is, yes, it's not always easy to serve God, but he's a good master, and he will never ask you to sacrifice something that is for your ultimate good. 
And too many people are sacrificing the good things in their lives to serve an idol that will never serve them back. They live their lives in pursuit of more money, more money, more money, and never satisfies. That's why when Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? He responded, just one more dollar. (laughs) Why? Because there's never enough. So how do we destroy these idols? Like Moses destroyed this idol, powdered it up and made the people drink it. Here's what Joshua 24 verse 15 says. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, you say, I don't want to serve the Lord. I don't want God to be the ultimate authority in my life. I don't want to surrender to him. Then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Remember, it doesn't say choose if you will serve. That's not what this passage says. Because every one of you will serve something or someone. Some ideology, some political party, some quest, some dream, something will have ultimate authority in your life. So choose. Choose today. What's going to be my ultimate authority? It's going to be something. So choose it. And so Joshua says, choose for yourselves this day who you're going to serve, whether the God of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the God of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But Josh goes on to say this, all right? Can I call him Josh? Does that work? All right. We'll call him Josh. And Josh comes along and says, but it's for me and my house. Hey, choose whoever. You want to serve materialism? Serve materialism. But don't pretend to be playing that God's this ultimate authority. If you want to go serve a sense of beauty, if you want to go serve a sense of materialism, if you want to go serve a political party and make that the ultimate focus of your hope and your dreams and your satisfaction and joy, then just go do it. But he says, for me and my house, I'm serving God. Because God's proven, and Joshua's saying, God's proven to me that he's a benevolent, benevolent master. He's a good, good master. He's a master that brings joy and peace and hope and love. He brings ultimate satisfaction and contentment. He's a good God, and that's why I'm going to choose to serve him. You see, it's not about if we're going to serve or worship. It's a matter of who or what we're going to serve and worship. One theologian said it this way, idolatry is not just an issue in our lives, it's the issue. It's not just a problem, it is the problem. If I were a doctor and somebody came to me, I'm not, but they were coughing, (coughs) coughing, got this cough. And I, as a doctor, came and we did some tests. And in these tests and in these scans, I found out that this person has lung cancer. And as a doctor, I went to that person and I said, man, this is horrible. You, you got this cough. You got lung cancer. This is bad. We need to take care of it. Maybe put you on chemotherapy. Maybe we need to do some surgery. Here, we got to do this in order, you know, to, get, to, to, to make you better. And if this person came to me and said, no, I don't, I don't care about the cancer. I just want you to get rid of the cough. So I give them cough syrup. And they stop coughing as they continue to die quickly. You say, that would be crazy. But this is what so many Christians want today. They, they don't, they don't want to deal with the, with the essence of idolatry. They just want to deal with, you know, just how it negatively affects their lives. And I see this all the time in counseling. 
People will come and they'll say, oh, this is happening, that's happening, and it's like, no, we gotta get to the root of this thing. There's an idolatry issue here. That's, that's why you've lost your joy. That's why you've lost your peace. That's why you've lost your contentment. And they're like, no, I just want you to deal with the, you know, what, what these things are producing. I just want you to deal with the symptoms, not the true illness. But idolatry is the issue. Yes, there's a lot of symptoms that will go along with different forms of idolatry, but the problem is idolatry. So here's the deal. Relinquishing idols won't solve your idolatry problem. Just giving them up. It's, I'm telling you, you say, so how do we deal with this? How do we destroy this idolatry that exists in our life? Just relinquishing it and giving it up is not going to destroy it. Removing idols. You say, well, my idol, my idol is a, a car. Or my idol is my career. Just giving those things up won't destroy the idolatry because your heart is an idolatry, an idol-making factory. Just make a new one. So just relinquishing, just removing it is not going to help. Here's, here's, how you, here's how you destroy idols in your life. You replace. You replace the idol with something that can fully satisfy and solve the issue. Replacement. Not relinquishing the idol, not removing the idol, but replacing the idol. And from the Bible's perspective, we see the only way you can truly replace idolatry in a healthy way is to allow God to get back into his rightful place. To allow him to be your ultimate source of worth and value and self-esteem to allow him to be your ultimate source of satisfaction and contentment and joy and love and, and ascribe him ultimate worth. This is why John chapter number three, verse 30 tells us, it says, he must increase, but I, I must decrease. This is, how, this is how you replace idolatry. You say, God, it's all about you. I know you're good. I can trust you. I put you first. You see, idolatry robs us from the ability to experience God's best for our lives. So here's our takeaway and we're done. If you want to jot this down, jot this down. Replace idols, don't just remove them. Replace them. You say, what do I replace it with? You replace it with spending time in the presence of God and allowing God to be that thing that you see as most high and most worthy and most grand and most glorious. And you replace that idol. Don't just remove them. Because you just remove them, something else will come and take its place. So here's my question. We started with in the beginning of the message, and that's this. What's your golden calf? What's your golden calf? That thing that, it's like, this is the biggest, this is the thing that's going to make all my dreams come true. This is going to be the thing that makes me happy. This is the thing that's going to give me satisfaction. This is the thing that is just going to be. What is your golden calf? You say, why do we want to get rid of it? Because those golden calves will demand that you sacrifice to them things that will just never, ever satisfy They'll, they'll force you to make sacrifices that will destroy some of the best parts of your life. Only God, only God demands sacrifices that are for your ultimate good. Every other idol will demand sacrifices that will ultimately ruin you. And this, this is why God is so good. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you're a good God. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow our hearts just to be filled with a desire for your presence, a desire to be satisfied with you and you alone. And Lord, thank you for these other blessings that you give us. Thank you for material possessions and for money and for family and relationships and for hobbies and and for uh, health and, and all these things that you give us as gifts. But Lord, please help us from keeping, help us from allowing those things to become ultimate things in our lives and let them have their proper priority in our lives, dear God. Lord, I pray, I ask that you that you would have the preeminence in our heart and our souls and our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name.